Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, welcome to GodPod 57. And uh, very nice to see you, Jane. Thank you. And, and you. Michael. Very good to see you, Graham. And uh, we have a fourth mystery guest today fourth member of the trinity <laughs> yeah that's right um our fourth guest today is well it's not a, well we're not no it's not a fourth guest it's a guest it's kind of a guest it's, it's actually not a really a guest it's uh, chris tilling <laughs> so that was a rather long I'm, and involved I'm not a guest and i am a guest uh, I'm, I'm confused now <laughs> but it's really good to have you here <laughs> is i think what he's trying to say <laughs> Yes, that wasn't the best introduction in the world, Chris. <laughs> but uh, Chris Tilling, uh, if you are a listener to GodPod, you may have heard him before because he is our um, New Testament tutor here at uh, St. Paul's Theological Centre and St. Melida's College. So uh, Chris knows a thing or two about the Bible, and um, that's why we brought him along. Because we don't. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The only biblical one in the room, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> it seems. Well, yes, he has a beard, which mm. um, qualifies him to be biblical. Well, it's almost because, patriarchal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even the bearded women of the Bible are well known, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. So anyway, the, the idea for this Godpod is to uh, to tackle some of the um, the more kind of biblically focused questions that have come in over uh, the months and the years. Um, we usually avoid them <laughs> like the plague <laughs> because we don't really know much about it. So, um, but this time we have a, we have someone who knows something about the Bible. So we are mm, going yeah. to try to tackle some of those. Um, um, those bits and pieces. So, just so you know, the, uh, the 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 morning so far has been spent in a in a random hunt for milk to go in our coffee. It has because we can't do theology without coffee. Absolutely, <laughs> we ought to learn. But yeah. <laughs> we had the biscuits, we had the water, we had everything else, but not we didn't have any milk. Power, not by my, <laughs> but not with by milk. coffee. Exactly. So, um, we are going to pitch our way into some of these um, very interesting questions that have come in. And uh, the first one is um, one that came in from... She's come in from various sources over the time. And again, we've avoided it studiously so far. But now, Chris, you are here. And uh, we are trusting in you to come up with <laughs> I the love answer. how I'm being set up here for a great <laughs> fall. Exactly. And this is from uh, Lucy Edivine. And um, it is about the, the, the verse in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine that everyone who gets to this verse sort of stumbles over it and suddenly thinks, hmm, what on earth is that about? And the verse is, um, Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? So um, this idea of being baptised for the dead, and it sounds <coughs> like Paul is saying that that was a relatively common practice in either in Corinth or some of the other places in the New Testament times, but uh, I guess we don't do that much now. And so um, the question is, what is it? Well, yeah, there's a number of ways of understanding this passage. And you, know, you can take it at face value and, and, and assume that, that, that Paul is talking about literally baptising the dead as if it was a practice that they all knew. It's, at this point, it's just a, a chain in a longer argument about uh, resurrection. 
But there's some ambiguity in the Greek, which gives some interpreters room for manoeuvre, because it's a little bit difficult to, to think that, that Paul is talking about truly baptising the dead. We don't know about this practice from any other source, mm. so <clears throat> uh, scholars have looked for other answers. And the, the Greek word that you, you know, baptised on behalf of the dead or, or for the dead... So it's not baptizing dead people. No, it's it, baptizing for the dead or on behalf of. That's right. It ca- it can mean baptizing on behalf of the dead. So mm. one commentator, and a m- brilliant commentary on First Corinthians is written by Anthony Thistleton, and he says that this passage refers to the, the common occurrence of of those who aren't <clears throat> saved, and their a family member dies, a Christian family member dies. And because of their death, they are prompted to faith because they wish to be with their loved one in the afterlife. And mm. so it mm. refers, he suggests, to the practice of them being baptised on behalf of their dead relatives. Mm. And that's another way around that particular passage. Almost for the sake of. Yeah, for the sake of. For the of. sake of being yeah, with. That's and, right, yeah. Mm. But there's ambiguity here in, in the text, and, mm. and that's only one way around this particular verse. And I guess it's it's the kind of verse, isn't it, that it, Paul talks about it in passing, and he's not necessarily, I guess, um, passing judgment one way or the other on it. He's not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing necessarily. He's just yeah. saying that this happens, whatever it is, mm-hmm. in the Christian community. There's some connection between baptism and, and people who've died. And uh, I guess his, his, his wider argument is arguing for, um, you know, against those who, in the church in Corinth who are kind of seem, seem to be arguing that there's no resurrection. That's it. And he's saying, yeah. well, why, why do people do this if there is no resurrection? Yeah, that's it. That's why, one of the reasons why Tony Thistleton thinks this is a good interpretation, this this alternative reading, because it's about being with your loved one in the resurrection. It's It focuses the resurrection, which is, of course, what the whole chapter is about, First mm-hmm. Corinthians 15. It's a plausible one, and I'm, I'm convinced by it. But it suggests it must have been happening quite a lot, doesn't it? For Paul to mention it as proving um, how much people actually take for granted there really is a resurrection. Mm. Mm. Very interesting. Well, it's the only time in the Bible that it is mentioned, isn't it? And I don't know whether I don't know there are there any other references in early church writings to baptism for the dead. I'm not aware of any. <laughs> not that I know of. No. So it's a slightly odd little thing, isn't mm. it? That as you say, Paul seems to recognise it as a, hap- as a as a practice that they would recognise, and they'd yeah. they'd they'd know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but I think it is quite an interesting sort of little... Um, uh, the, I, I like the way Paul argues. He shows what we do. Um, he shows the implications of what we actually do without mm. thinking. Mm. Um, and I often think, you know, the, the way people automatically send up a prayer or something when something awful is happening, even if they say they don't believe in God. Yeah. Or the people who talk about creation while saying they don't believe in God. Mm. Um, and the sort of implications of things that we, yeah. we do without thinking yeah. can be very and, revealing, actually. Yeah. And what we, what we do actually reveals what we really believe yeah. underneath rather than, than somebody. And actually it often works that way, doesn't it? And it often works out, interestingly <coughs> enough, in Christian faith that often what we believe comes out of what we worship. Yeah. Not always the other way around. Yes. Known as lex orendi, the, the law of, of praying. That's actually how you pray. Shows yeah. you, in a sense, what you, what you believe. Lex um, orendi. Wasn't he one of the lex- villains in the Superman movies? <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference between <laughs> us, Graham. You're so in touch with modern popular culture. Or so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. But I was, I was going to be too polite to say that. Um, 
there's a there's a lovely um sermon i read of uh, nigel biggers who's done a god pod with us and who's professor of moral and pastoral theology at oxford entitled um on taking seriously the faith of feet and it arose out of uh, a conversation that he had um when he was a college chaplain with somebody who said came up to him in the bar and said i really enjoyed even song on sunday i thought it was a wonderful service and really moving um, of course, I'm an atheist, so I don't quite know why I enjoyed it so much, but I did. And he said, he can't remember now what he said to her, but what he should have said is, well, sometimes being there tells you more about what you believe than what your mm. bra- brain mm. at one at the surface level yeah. might give affirmation to. Mm. Um, and so he said, take seriously the faith of feet. The very fact that you're there mm. says something about who you actually are mm. and and, yeah. and who you want to be and mm. what you want to be associated with. Mm. Which is interesting too, isn't it? Because presumably sometimes, well, maybe always, only God knows that. Yep. And that often there are people who on the surface seem quite hostile to faith. And you wonder whether underneath there's something quite different going on, <coughs> which has some interesting implications for judgment and mm all of that as well and indeed for evangelism i think yeah. you know yeah. don't assume people are necessarily where they yeah. appear to be <laughs> very good chris you're doing well so far thank you very much i didn't slip up yet <laughs> <laughs> time will tell yeah. um that's very very helpful indeed uh thank you for that one lucy and um the next one is from um uh someone called uh, max lees who sent an email in a little while ago which um has a number of different questions in it, all um, focused around the question of language. I think Cam Max is a, is, a, is a language graduate, in fact, from Cardiff University, so I guess that's where the interest comes from. But the one that um, we thought was, was quite interesting to look at was um, the idea that, uh, well, this is this question. Occasionally in some Bible versions of passages in the New Testament talking about spiritual gifts, the phenomenon commonly referred to as tongues is translated as languages. My question really is, do you, think do you think there's anything to say about this possibility given the theological ramifications in such a different translation? So I guess the question is around this biblical gift of tongues, which we find in the <coughs> New Testament. It's um, used in many different churches and indivi- with individual Christians, and, and how we view that and how it relates to ordinary human language and everything else. So... Mm. Chris, we're looking at you. Well, <laughs> yeah, the the tongues that you read about in uh, the beginning of Acts with Pentecost, um, and the Greek word there is actually the same word that you're going to find in in First Corinthians, where tongues is spoken about as well. But in but in Acts two, it's pretty clear that you're talking about other languages there. Uh, the, that's part of the amazement. Yes, it, exactly. Yes. It's part of yeah. the amazement. They hear others praising God in their own language. <clears throat> When Paul refers to tongues, there's some debate in in scholarship at the moment whether Paul is referring to human languages or not. Um, Some will say, well, well, hang on a minute. Paul speaks here in 1 Corinthians 13 of of the tongues of angels uh, as, as if this is not a human language. It's a sort of celestial, spiritual language. Um, but others will, will argue, nevertheless, Paul must be referring here to a human language. Um, on the whole, I think that the balance for me just tips slightly in saying that Paul is speaking here about a, a slightly different type of, of uh, a phenomena that you find 
in Acts, uh, the beginning of Acts, he seems to be speaking about a spiritual language here uh, because he speaks, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 12 or 14, I forget exactly where, where the, the mind is unedified. People do not understand what he is saying. And that's one of the reasons why it needs to be interpreted in a worship setting. Yeah, it's the 1 Corinthians 14, isn't it? Where 14, is it? talks right. about in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct yeah. others than 10,000 words in a tongue, yeah. which does imply that yeah. tongues in that context is unintelligible to normal human yeah. speech. It's some kind of ecstatic language or, or, or sounds which don't exactly. refer to any sort of yeah. linguistic forms in any particular language. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So, so take that together with the, mm. the tongues of angels. And it's, it's likely, I think, that Paul is referring to a kind of spiritual language, whereas in Acts mm. it refers to a human language. Mm. I, I mean, it does say in, in 1 Corinthians 14 that, that people who speak in tongues are speaking to God, and so it's best to do it on your own, mm. seems to be what it's saying mm. um, in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, that you speak in tongues to edify yourself. Um, but Paul is saying he'd like us all to do it, yeah. <laughs> uh, but just not necessarily in a church setting where we're actually <coughs> thinking about each other. Yeah. Mm. As he seems to say, it, it, it kind of happens. And he's not, yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing to happen in church, in that, that he, he does talk about, I mean, I would rather speak intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue. Um, and he talks about the whole church coming together and everyone speaks in tongues and we don't understand who come in and so on. So he, he does seem to kind of recognise it as a practice. Mm. He seems to emphasise the kind of private use of it as a private gift. Yeah. But it's interesting to know what, what you think about whether whether it is something he just thinks is kind of okay to happen in church, but don't put too much store by it, or quite quite what he what he means in that context. I mean, I find that um, uh, yes, I must admit, let Chris do it because he. You know, but but I find that a very interesting discussion because he's talking about what it feels like for somebody else coming in. He talks about what it's fe- what it feels like yeah. to be a foreigner, mm. um, and and I think already church is quite a foreign place for quite a lot of people. So if, if uh, and so what we're trying to do is make um, speak in a language that others mm. can feel at home with. Mm. Um, and, and that is an argument for um, confining the use of tongues to mm. um, a, a, either a, a place when you're on your own or with others who understand mm. what you're doing, rather than in church in general. But what do you make of this passage, Chris? Or Latin. Latin. <laughs> <coughs> well, yeah, I'm, on the one hand, Paul seems to be quite energetic and, and, and passionate about speaking in tongues. He spends a lot of time talking about it, doesn't he? Mm. And he would say... I, in this one epistle, does he mention it in other places? No. So it's clearly something that's happening a lot mm. in Corinth. Yes. yes, it is. It must be, yeah. But you see, I would mm. wish that you would speak in tongues uh, as... as mm. He speaks in tongues a lot, he seems to imply in this, mm. this mm. passage. Um, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, he says. But it seems that for the community, the gathered community, if a tongue is used... Uh, an interpretation is required. Um, that said, I wonder, you know, if there is a place, because we can't, of course, box God and the Holy Spirit and how he moves according to <coughs> certain words and, and principles, I think there is a, f- a phenomenon, singing in tongues, mm-hmm. which which is its corporate worship of God. Uh, it's simply an expression of worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think... 
I don't think Paul would be stamping on his feet and saying, you stop, stop now, stop, mm. uh, if it's true worship. Um, mm. uh, so, I, yeah, I think we can read a little bit too much into these words um, here. The, the, the bit that I always find most um, helpful and compelling is actually when Paul's talking in Romans 8 about the Spirit praying in us mm. with words mm. too deep for our understanding. And that's always been my sense of tongues, that there are... In, you know, there is just so much that we are completely incapable of yeah. mm. uh, of um, grasping enough to pray in our own words yeah. about, uh, and yet that discipline of of allowing God um, control, allowing God to to pray in us. I think I think that's right, isn't it? I mean, like silence, tongues is a giving up of control. Yeah, mm. um, it's an admission that we don't necessarily know what to pray for in a particular mm. situation, and and almost writing a blank check. I think, and and saying, there you go, <laughs> do do what you like with it. It seems to me that there's a there's a kind of range of phenomena <laughs> we're talking about here. The range from, I guess, what's sometimes called xenolalia, which is the act two ability to speak in a, a language that you don't actually you haven't actually learned. And you do hear stories of that, don't you? You hear stories of, you know, someone wandering into a church and who's Chinese or whatever, and suddenly hearing someone at the front speaking in tongues, and actually they say, hang on, that's Chinese. Or, mm. uh, and you, I mean, you hear stories of that and, and so on, um, even even today. Um, you know, so there's, there's that, but then there's also this um, this kind of private gift of, 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 of tongues where, you, where people speak to God in a, in a, in sounds that are not part of a normal language. There's sort of singing in tongues, as you've talked about. There's, um, there's, there's a, uh, an individual word which seems to require an interpretation. In other words, something that happens here in Corinth where someone speaks mm. in a tongue that no one understands, but then someone gives an interpretation. In other words, there's a quite a range of different phenomena here, all gathered under the, the title tongues. Yeah. And I think it's quite helpful to think of that. It's not one single yeah, phenomenon. It's actually a range of uh, phenomena which are which operate at this maybe this sort of subliminal kind of um, you know yeah. there's this level underneath our kind of conscious uh, controlled language as, as Mike was saying and um, which is and, you know it's, it's and it's interesting also that Paul writes this stuff in one Corinthians in a quite occasional way in the sense he's just responding to what's happening in Corinth he's not actually <coughs> writing out a full theology of the gift of tongues which I think is why I think you're right Chris I'm not sure he'd just because singing in tongues isn't yeah, down right. here doesn't mean that Paul would disallow it I think there's, there's a couple of principles here like it everything has to be done for the edification of the church um, you know it's, it's and, and there are some principles that, that are down there that govern the use of these range of gifts or these and range or, of order clearly yeah, is another, exactly. another one right. yeah I mean I think one of the kind of uh, second order issues here is um, one of interpretation of scripture. I mean, what you were saying, Chris, is that it's you can't just assume that a word that's used in Acts, if it occurs again in 1 Corinthians, means the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, one is written by Luke, the other is written by Paul, and you have to take account of their individual, that they're different people with different ways of speaking and different kinds of language, and, and you have to get to know each one individually. And, and in a sense, that itself reflects the individuality that's so affirmed at Pentecost. Everybody hears in their own language. Yeah. They don't have to learn a different language. God speaks to them in their own language. Mm. Um, and I remember mm. Roy Clements using a uh, picture of, he said, it's interesting that every when God freezes water in a snowflake, uh, everyone is different. When we do it, we get ice cubes. <laughs> um, and that love of the individual and the different and the diverse and the varied and the kind of particular 
is is characteristic of God all over the shop. It seems yeah. to me. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose it, I, I, think, I was thinking recently how, in some ways, there are links between sort of spoken liturgy and tongues, because in a way, both of them are using another language than your own. Both completely incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> Very often. That's the case. But it strikes me that there are, there are times when, you know, you pray extemporarily and you're in, in, in English or whatever language you speak and you're able to put into words what you want to say. Yeah. There are other times when you can't do that. Well, either for one reason or another, either because, you know, your heart is so full of joy that you just simply... The human language doesn't seem to do the job and and tongues can can then be a form of addressing god that that sort of works beyond that but then there are other times when for very different reasons maybe you know whatever reason it, you know, my own language doesn't quite seem to bear the weight of what i want to say which is when yeah. sort of written liturgy can can come into play and it seems to be both in some ways are are, are similar things they're both ways of worshiping god addressing god using language other than 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 my own and um and you know there's a interesting interplay between those two things and and you know but very often you don't find them in the same churches uh, yeah. speaking in tongues and spoken liturgy and maybe there's a role for both of those yeah. alongside our extemporary use of yeah, language absolutely. um yeah one other aspect of, of speaking in tongues as well that i i like is is the focus then becomes the spirit's work within you uh in mm. in the prayer mm. um and there, there is a sense sometimes in which I think we, our worship can become something that we do uh, to please God, to placate God. It becomes something tiresome, mm. something difficult, a work that needs to be done. And uh, a theologian called James Torrance once pointed out that actually worship is, is participating in, in the priestly ministry of Christ. It's, it's, it's participating in the grace of that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. That's worship. And I think tongues is a thing that can actually bring us back to that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Very helpful, very interesting. Well, we could go on about tongues for quite a long time. And um, I'm rather glad we're speaking in English at the moment. At least I can understand what's going on. <laughs> but um, Even if none of the listeners can. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so we will move on to another one, which is um, we're now moving to Canada. I'm not quite sure where Max was from the last one, but uh, this is this is uh, Paul Moffat in St John's, Newfoundland, Canada. Oh well, I know St John's, Newfoundland. I love them. Very, very beautiful place. It's where they make the fog. You can go down to the harbour and just see it being made <laughs> coming <laughs> off the harbour. That's where it comes from. Yeah, that's where it comes from. So we blame the Canadians then. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful city. Okay, I'm very envious of somebody who comes from St John's, Newfoundland. Okay, well, having said that, um, thank you, Mike. Um, <laughs> The question is, uh, this is Paul saying, uh, the Old Testament readings in my daily office are just turned from readings to readings from the Apocrypha. And I'm not just, I'm just, just not convinced that the Apocrypha is God-breathed scripture in the same way as the first canon, as he calls it. Um, I've heard it said that Christians should think of the deuterocanonical writings as being, if not the word of God, the next best thing, a kind of step in between the scripture and the writings of the church fathers uh, and mothers, <coughs> for example. Um, so I guess the question is, what use do these books have? Um, and uh, I don't know if somebody wants to give, give a little um, description of the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical writings and what they are. I mean, Oh dear, everyone's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it, you've got a variety of different texts in, in the Apocrypha. M much as you do really in, in the Old Testament, you've got a continuation of 
of the histories. You've got some uh, uh, short stories that are there for instruction as, as well as for entertainment. So sh should we give some examples as we go along? <laughs> well, the histories were the, Macca the Maccabees. Maccabees. That's what, the Maccabees. One and, and two uh, Maccabees. You, you've got some psalms. Well, a, a psalm. Uh, <coughs> and you've got... Um, Wisdom of Solomon. Yes. Short story is, would be Tobit. Proverbs yeah. and, thank you, and, and Ecclesiastes. Mm. There's these texts mm. like that. Ecclesiasticus. Ec there's Ecclesiasticus in mm. there, which yeah. develops Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Yeah. So and that's they, sort of tradition. And aren't they, um, aren't they the books that were in the kind of Greek version of the Old Testament, but not in the Hebrew ones? Isn't that one of the distinctions that... that yes. So actually, Protestant Bibles tend to have just the kind of Hebrew list uh, of biblical books, whereas Catholic Bibles quite often have this extra bit, which includes some Greek writings that were just in the Greek, that's or were exactly written in right. Greek rather than that's rather exactly than in the right. old Hebrew list. Is yeah, that right? That's exactly right, yeah. Good, glad I know something yeah, about the yeah. Bible. There you go. And <laughs> Uh, th th these texts, I often say to my students, apart from the Old Testament, the most useful texts that you can read as background for the New Testament, uh, beyond before you go to any introduction to the New Testament, the best texts, the Apocrypha. And I stress this to my students because with the Apocrypha being taken out of most Bibles, I think unfamiliarity has led to contempt, and that's a great pity, because these were never texts to be suspicious of uh, as if they were dangerous. I mean, the idea is, why remove them unless they're a, they're a bit dangerous, isn't it? That's, that's because, the question Because the they weren't the taken out of any published Bible until the 19th century, were they? Is it until the 19th century? I, I, believe, so that's, I believe it's right. Yes. That's right. The, 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 until then, it was always published within. And they are, of course, used as scripture by the overwhelming majority of Christians in the world yes. today. I guess the problem is they became a bit of a, a sort of point of contention between Protestants <coughs> and Catholics yeah. because Protestants tended to go with the the Hebrew Bible, I think largely on the grounds that that was the Bible that Jesus and the apostles would have, would, would have, would have known and, 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 and used, or at least that was the argument, um, or Jesus as an Aramaic-speaking sort of rabbi would have you know, presumably known the Hebrew Bible and spoke with those rather than the, these, these extra Greek books. And whereas the Catholic church tended to kind of include these and so but i guess they became a a bone of contention between the two traditions which is probably why they got kind of sidelined out of some out of some bibles yeah. especially protestant bibles uh, for that very reason but part of 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 the, the what we've been we've been discovering in the last sort of 20 30 years is um is that there's actually a considerable claim for the the greek translation mm. of mm. the old testament to be in many ways older than a lot of the the Hebrew translation, so what we call the Septuagint, um, a lot of scholars I think would now say um, has at least as much claim to antiquity mm. uh, as uh, later Hebrew manuscripts and Hebrew, Hebrew yeah, translations. Exactly right. uh, and of course, the Apocrypha mm. does exist mm. yeah. um, uh, in 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 the yeah. Septuagint. Yeah. So. yeah, this is this is a really interesting point because yeah, th there's these texts found at Qumran, and we have some really old Hebrew scrolls now. And these Hebrew scrolls have been compared with the Hebrew Bible that is the basis for the Protestant uh, Old Testament canon and the Greek uh, that is the basis for, uh, for the extended canon. And the, the older Hebrew tends to correspond better with the Greek, which is very interesting. Mm. But there's mm. always been uh, a vocal minority in the church 
uh, Tertullian in the early church, and, and then of course this was taken up with passion by Luther in the Reformation that that these texts aren't to be aren't to be seen as dangerous, but just have a slightly distinct place in Scripture. Uh, so they can be used in in worship, but not to establish any particular doctrine, as it came to be framed in the Church of mm, England, of course. Mm, but mm. Uh, um, the one danger to to avoid, I think, is is suspicion of these mm-hmm. texts. They're good and they're useful devotionally in all kinds of ways, mm. educationally. So what, what then? I mean, back to Paul's question, I guess, which is, if there is a distinction there, and I guess within the Anglican Church. Um, the 39 Articles does make a distinction and, and mm-hmm. says that they are useful for reading and it encourages Christians to read them, but they're not to be viewed as the same as the same sort of status, as it were, as the um, as the sort of shortened Old Testament canon and, and the New Testament one. So, what's the distinction? What's well, why the, is that distinction? I mean, the distinction is the one that, that Chris has made is is um, that Protestants want to argue that. Uh, that you can't form a doctrine on something that you only find in the apocrypha. Mm-hmm. But why? Why is that though? Why? Why? Why don't? The why don't we? Why doesn't the apocrypha count? Well, it seems to me an interesting. Uh, I mean, I entirely agree with you, Chris, about um, you know, not being suspicious of these documents. They're hugely important for understanding the New Testament. Um, but I think it's true to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that though they are referred to a lot in the New Testament and quoted sometimes, they're never actually quoted with the phrase it is written or any kind of formula like that that so much of the other bits of the Old Testament are. Now, does that imply that they, though they were around, though they were influential, they weren't regarded as being as authoritative even then? Um, to, to be honest, it's difficult to know. The, the extent of the canon... In the first te- in the first century, mm. is is really we don't know the the yeah. evidence doesn't allow us to say for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, nevertheless, that's a fact. Uh, mm-hmm. What you say there, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really pleased to to hear that um, our questioner is using a, a lectionary, a, a set of readings, <laughs> um, so that he's reading with fan, the church. Jane. I'm a great fan of the lectionary because it does allow you to read with the church, and I think mm. that if this is a question that we as Uh, Christians across the divided churches disagree about, then actually we can do something really important by reading them together, Mm -hmm. reading them and praying with them and asking God to to open them to us. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the Church of England at least nearly always provides an alternative to um, to a text from the Apocrypha, and my suggestion is that you read both. And it's never going to do you any harm to read more scripture rather than less. <laughs> if it is, of course. <laughs> um, and I, mean, I think the other interesting point is, is to, you know, the reason why the Old Testament is so important is that it is the event horizon, if you like, for, for the event, the Jesus event, um, and therefore part of what, how you understand him. Um, and... You know, to the extent that the Apocrypha are part of that event horizon, um, to use a scientific term, they're part of what fed into him. They're they're bound to shed light upon him, and and to help you to understand him, and therefore yeah. you can do absolutely no harm by reading them. Absolutely, Chris. I mean, I mean, going back to this question of the distinction, I mean, the the argument that was used at the time of the Reformation between to distinguish between Apocrypha and and. Um, the shorter canon was this thing of, of you know, which Bible did Jesus and the apostles use? And the only argument you know, as Hebrew stroke Aramaic speakers, they would have used the Hebrew books, not 
this extra the, this extra list of Greek books. Is that is that true, or is that something that modern scholarship would would carry out? I mean, do we know what language Jesus and the apostles spoke? Did they did they did yeah. they did they read Greek? Um, it's very possible. I mean, these are we don't know absolutely for sure, but it's likely that Jesus would have spoken a bit of Greek, mm. and. Uh, Maybe it was only enough to to mm. uh, to have some kind of financial transaction in the north um, mm. where he came from. And presumably, if the gospels are written by or at least come from in some way the apostles, and they are in Greek, there was a level of Greek speaking amongst well, them too. Well, yeah, I mean, at least some of them would have spoken Greek. The educated, mm. uh, perhaps John the Elder, would have yep. known a little bit of Greek, and obviously he. Uh, he did, I think. Uh, he's likely the author of the fourth gospel. But others, um, Peter would have played a large role in the gospel of Mark, but mm. wouldn't have penned it necessarily. Yeah. Mm. And most scholars will say, no, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Mm. That was his language. Yep. Um, and, uh, but whether that's an argument for canonicity or not, is it's a difficult mm. one. As mm. and I think one of the key issues in, in the Reformation, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is the... Um, the whole idea that you could pray for the dead uh, mm -hmm. in some way, atoning for them, mm -hmm. you could perhaps read that into a passage, I think it was in First Maccabees yeah. 11 or somewhere, yeah. and on the basis of this mm -hmm. doctrine, Luther, of course, rejecting mm -hmm. the, um, uh, the doctrine throughout the Apocrypha uh, in its canonical status on equal level with yeah. the rest of the canon. Mm -hmm. um, is that Good. correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's clearly something that right from the very beginning of the Reformation was Luther's complaint about indulgences, and although at that time, it's not a, you know, that the reason for that was not because you you cannot pray for the dead, but later on, and then the whole question of purgatory became an issue a little bit later on within the Reformation itself. And Luther's at the beginning is a little bit sort of um, can't quite work out whether he does believe in it or not. Later on, he comes to express severe doubts about it. But I guess there we're getting into a whole other territory. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, um, that's a really interesting discussion about the Apocrypha. And uh, I guess we could go on about that for quite a long time as well. Um, <laughs> but we won't. And uh, there's just one more question which I want to just um, touch on briefly before we finish. Uh, when we're recording this, we're recording this actually in November. So Christmas is just around the corner. And um, this is a question that came Advent in Advent comes first, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jane. <laughs> if you bought a lectionary, you'd know with uh, that. No. <laughs> Yeah, still, there's apocrypha in it. That's the only thing. <laughs> um, it's a question that came in from one of our students who says um, he has a long-running discussion with his wife uh, about Good. Father Christmas, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and they have a. And it's, I, I think this is really relatively common, actually. That some some Christians feel that that um, you really you should not teach your kids about Father Christmas because you end up lying to your children about this mythical figure. And um, that's not a good thing, to, good habit to get into. Uh, some would argue that actually Father Christmas, you know, how does a child distinguish between Jesus and Father Christmas? If Jesus, if they have to say after a few years, well, actually, Father Christmas doesn't exist, do you have to say the same thing about Jesus? Um, and uh, others would say, well, it's just a bit of harmless fun. We've got good sort of uh, childhood memories of Father Christmas. So is there any theological significance to it? Should we mention Father Christmas to our kids? Are we deceiving them? 
Shall I start as, as somebody who is the president of the St Nicholas Society? I, I think. Um, <laughs> Does I mean, you dress up in a beard and and, and, and white hair at Christmas. Somebody Jane. else does. Um, there, there's a, a friend of ours who, um, who is really St Nicholas reincarnated, <laughs> and about this time of year goes round uh, to a lot of different schools uh, and and has a major. Uh, procession through the streets of Canterbury on St Nicholas Day, dressed oh. up as St Nicholas, uh, who is of course the origins of Father Christmas, St Nicholas of Myra, um, about whom there are a number of stories, uh, mostly to do with him actually understanding the nature of God, that God is, is a gift giver, uh, and that what happens at Christmas is God gives himself to us, mm. and that those of us who want to respond to God learn to be generous like that, um, so that the, the spirit of generosity uh, uh, that is that is displayed uh, by St Nicholas by Father Christmas is 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 what it is that we're trying to teach our children. Mm. Um, I think myself that it's really difficult as a parent to prevail against um, the universal message they get through sc- through schools and through advertising uh, about the reality of Father Christmas. But I've always been inclined to in, uh, inject a note of scepticism about that uh, and actually to, to try to reconnect Father Christmas with St Nicholas, mm. a real historical mm. figure, uh, and that whole spirit of generosity without necessarily implying that Father Christmas um, really exists. Yeah. I like that idea. And I guess um, I think looking, thinking back what we did our, with our kids was, yes, we did the Father Christmas thing, but as soon as they started to doubt it, mm. we didn't try to pretend that, oh yes, it really is real. <laughs> quite early on we were quite happy to say oh, yes of course he doesn't exist but it's different with Jesus and um, I think giving the opportunity to tell the story of one of the great saints of the Christian church and that example of generosity that he, that he gives is actually quite a mm. quite a creative way of using the Father Christmas idea and one of the things I like about it of course is that children tend to think Christmas is about what they're going to get <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and actually if you begin quite early on to connect getting and giving what we're celebrating is the most extraordinary present um, and th- there's nothing in Christianity that requires us to be to be um, dismal the whole time it is uh, we're talking about an extraordinarily generous and joyful God um, uh, and that's what we're responding to um, but but we also want to help people resist getting themselves hideously into debt uh, overeating over drinking you know basically wrecking their lives for a, f- a few days of of what mostly people don't very much enjoy anyway and actually if you can get back to the real spirit <coughs> of christmas mm. yes rather than being a flight from reality it becomes an engagement with it yeah. i mean it's interesting isn't it in in line which in the wardrobe c.s lewis's novel father christmas appears yes. uh, and that's very much part of lewis's kind of sense that in christ all the pagan myths and hopes are fulfi- met and fulfilled. Yes. They're reshaped, but they're met and they're fulfilled. Mm. Uh, it, it's not that we need to repress all these things because they're untrue or bad or dangerous, but that everything that is good within them is is somehow embodied in, in the person of Christ. Mm. And, and so I think your idea, Jane, not of suppressing all that, but reconnecting it with its historical basis is, mm. is a really good one. So what, what, can I agree? I know. For once. <laughs> Amazing. You, heard, you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> now, what about so, impassibility? <laughs> no, no, hang on. Hang on. We're not, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not going to get very far with that. Um, so I guess the message is that uh, as Christians, we, um, yeah, we look up the whole story of St. Nicholas 
and we retell the story of St Nicholas and we join the St Nicholas Society, isn't that right, Jane? Absolutely, yes. Yep. So, you know, check out the website. Which is a society that does a lot of very good charitable work for, for children all over the world. Very good. Well, thank you, everybody. We've uh, reached the end of our time. Probably gone over our time. But, Chris, especially, a big thank you to you. Pleasure. Thank you. For so lots me. more hard questions for, for Chris, so we'll invite him back again. <laughs> good. Well, that was Godbot 57. And um, we will see you again next time. Bye. 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 That was Godpod, a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.